Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Again. I do want to say, before I get started on Romans again, uh, number one, echo uh, the kudos to Matt Gordon and uh, David and whoever else was working on that, the, the escape room thing. I was excited about the, the idea. I had no idea how clever they were going to be. Those were, that was a really, really good escape room, really a lot of fun. Uh, we had a good team in there, so we made it look easy. But uh, no, it was, uh, those were clever clues and something, uh, something I would love to see happen again. But there, I know a lot of work went into that. So thanks, Matt and the guys. And also, I would like to say Happy Mother's Day. I do not have a Mother's Day message today. Uh, I love, man, I love my mother. I love the fact that there is a Mother's Day, but it's not a church holiday. Uh, so I don't work real hard at, at, at ordering my message or, uh, messages around Mother's Day, Father's Day. But I do absolutely want to recognize, uh, recognize the gift that mothers are. But, you know, you honor your mom. Uh, do, it, uh, do it as you feel led. You know, we're a real spiritual family, so... Uh, for Mother's Day, Riley took Beth out to Steak and Shake and the Avengers movie last night. So they had a good time. Praise the Lord. Um, we are still in Romans. And I, know, I, I hope, listen, uh, I'm not going to apologize for anything. The feedback on this has been great. Uh, apparently Romans is really striking a chord with you. We, uh, we, this, is, uh, this is part five, and we are still, we just finished chapter five last week. I don't anticipate it taking a week per chapter. I intend to get through two whole chapters today, but I intended to do that last week, and it didn't happen. So uh, we'll see where it goes. I, uh, I know we've had a lot going on, and maybe uh, some of you are planning on getting out of here early because it's Mother's Day. Sorry, not going to, I'm kidding. We'll, we'll, like I said, I'm, I don't, I don't want to keep you here all morning, but... I'm excited about what I, I just get more excited because as Paul continues to build this case, it just gets better and better and better. But just a quick review of Romans, we see that in the, at the beginning of the book, he lays out his case that all are sinful. He presents evidence of fallen humanity in Romans chapter 1 and then goes on to specifically indict the Jews uh, who had the law given to them. And he points out that their confidence in circumcision is misplaced. The circumcision merely marks them as people who have the law and therefore know better. And therefore, if anything, since they are manifestly not keeping the law, they are more guilty than the Gentiles. Uh, he continues to develop the doctrine that all have sinned and that righteousness, while modeled in the law and revealed in the law, cannot be imputed by the law. The law that shows me my sin cannot cure me of it. This is something he is hammering home because the Jews really felt that circumcision was all they needed. The very fact that they were Jews got them out of all this judgment and trouble. And Paul's like, no, no, you're, you're, it, it is a great honor to be God's people, the Jews, because the word has been entrusted to us. But that same word is the word that indicts every one of us, convicts every one of us, ultimately condemns every one of us, because the word shows us just how far we have fallen from the ideal of righteousness that God has presented in the law. 
Righteousness can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, Paul looks at the faith of Abraham and Sarah, ultimately point out, uh, pointing out that they were able to receive the promise, in this case Isaac, because of their faith in God. Uh, not because the promise made sense, but because God himself uh, was faithful. They judged him faithful, and therefore they received the ability to receive that son, uh, even though they were well past childbearing years. So, uh, the more important thing of that, of that passage in Romans chapter 4 is that it was this faith that Abraham exhibited when he believed God. Remember, this was before the law. This was clear back in Genesis. But the, because Abraham believed God, that faith was accounted to him as what? As righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, and uh, so, this is all building up to something, and Paul's making the same case that it's still faith in God. Uh, the things that he has done that are going to count as righteous, righteousness for us. That we cannot make ourselves righteous by keeping the law. Last week, again, we only, we only got through chapter 5, which nails down the essential truth that this sin problem is one that we inherited from our first father, Adam. Uh, through one man, and he says this again and again, he says it in different, different phrasings, different ways, that sin entered the world through one man. Since the first man and woman sinned, therefore every man and woman born since then has been born in sin. And that this is why we sin. The good news is that just as death and sin came into the world through one man, Life and deliverance and rescue has, been, has also come into the world by one man, Jesus Christ. We find mercy, we find redemption, salvation, and our very righteousness through Christ. But just as we were born into sin because of Adam, we must be born into Christ. Born into righteousness, a new life. And this is where he really starts picking up uh, steam here. We ended with this in Romans chapter 5. We'll actually start in verse 20. I think I gave you 21, but verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. And if you need some explanation on that, you can go back and get last week's CD. But he's he's basically saying that, look, sin was always present. What the law did was spell it out for me. We, I knew there was something wrong with me, but once God gave the law, those, those again, that, that conviction, that indictment became very, very specific. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And in in, in uh, chapter six, verse one, it says, "What shall we say? That, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound?" In other words, since the more sin there was, the more grace abounded. Why don't we just sin even more so grace will abound all the more? And now he's going to spend some time answering this question. And in doing so, he really begins to define Christianity. Now remember, there's a, there's a lot of doctrine that you and I might take for granted, but which the people he's writing to, even though they were believers, there was a lot they did not understand about this. And it, does us, it will do us good to keep in mind that there are people who come in here from time to time who brand new believers or not believers yet, who don't understand this either. Uh, you don't have to look very hard. Uh, I see something anti-Christian, not, not just something non-Christian, not just something offensive to me as a Christian. I see things that are anti-Christianity 
on Facebook every single day. You'll see it in the news. And what I see almost every single time, that the, what people are rejecting, what they're making fun of, uh, is not Christianity as I understand it at all. It is a caricature and a poor one at that of Christianity. The way they describe Christianity, I just want to scream, I reject that too. But that's not what I believe. And so it, it does us good to understand that a lot of times people who are rejecting Christianity call themselves atheists. They don't know what it is they're rejecting. They, they don't understand this. And so, it, we, and so one of the values of this, and the reason you need to be paying attention and spending time in the Word, is that so you can explain it to people. They're going to ask you sometime, if you're living your life right, if you're saying the things you're supposed to say, if you're, if you're being bold as you're supposed to, if you're living the gospel and preaching the gospel, you're going to have to defend the gospel at some time. And that means being able to explain some of these, uh, what Paul calls elementary principles. Because what is a common understanding, really a misunderstanding of Christianity? Well, God is up in heaven, and he tells you to live a certain way and do certain things and don't do certain things. And if you do enough bad things and don't do enough good things, then he's going to torture you forever in hell. Is that what the Word of God says about salvation? Absolutely not. So we need to explain to him, no, no, no. That's so we tell him what Paul is telling us here. So... Uh, the picture that Paul draws beginning in, in chapter 6, verse 2, is, is the picture of death and resurrection. Uh, once again, as I said during the communion meditation, he is not talking about the importance of adopting a new set of beliefs. Doctrine is important. And he'll even mention, you accepted that doctrine that I preached. Doctrine absolutely is important. But the doctrine he is telling them is the, the doctrine of a relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, that this, the doctrine is that Jesus Christ himself is our salvation. And there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. But if you're trying to live right to get back to God, you're doing it backwards. And, and you are always going to fail at that. So he talks about this, this picture of, uh, again, death and resurrection. Let's go ahead and read it, uh, beginning in verse 2. Certainly not, in other words, we're not going to sin more so grace can abound. How shall we who died to sin... Live any longer in it. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall, uh, that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust, obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
Now, if you take that last half verse there out of context, as many do, people want to say that we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. And that, if you isolate that half a verse, you open yourselves up to a ton of error. What some people call the greasy grace movement, you know. It doesn't matter what we do. We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. And that's code for, it's all love, man. The only thing that matters is Jesus and we can do whatever we want. Not that, not that all things are profitable, but what we, our sin really isn't sin anymore. Because we're not, the sin is only sin under law, and we're not under law anymore. That is, now can you see, reading what we just read, that that's not what that's saying at all? He's saying that the reason we sinned before is because sin had dominion over us. We were dead in our sin. But if we die to sin, in other words, if we see ourselves in Christ, dying with him on the cross, being buried with him in baptism, and then being raised from the dead, we're a new person, and sin no longer has dominion over us. Now hang on, I'm going to come back to this, because Paul does. I'm going to come back to this again and again. Because then he shifts the illustration from uh, death and resurrection to slavery and freedom. I'm, I'm not done talking about this, but let me read this section next so it'll all, it'll, it'll all flow together. Uh, beginning in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, and in the, uh, sorry, in the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That last verse there, everybody knows that one, or most, most everybody knows that. It's a memory verse from Sunday school, the wages of sin is death. But do you see how rich it is in context? Now he's saying, when you submit, when you allow your lusts to lead you, when you act on every desire, every sinful desire and appetite, what you are doing, whether you feel like it or not, you're making yourself a slave to those things. But what you also have to understand is that when Christ frees you from the slavery of sin, you become his slave. And we don't like that idea at all here. Number one, because slavery, the word slavery, has a very narrow, specific meaning in our culture, uh, and, that's, and that's not uh, the broader meaning that Paul's talking about here. Uh, I, like, I like the way Bob Dylan put it in one of his uh, very first Christian songs that, that was played on, on the air back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. The song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. I didn't like the song, actually. I was never a huge Dylan fan, and I thought it was kind of a, I don't know, weird, and I don't have enough rock and roll creds to really appreciate what good music is. Don Rash, you probably loved that song, didn't you? Uh, but, the, but the message was right. Uh, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but everybody's serving somebody. 
Nobody is absolutely autonomous. Okay? Now, and I've said this before. The devil, while he might really like active worship, all he really cares about is that you're not worshiping God. Because if you're not, you ultimately are worshiping him. Okay? Even if it's passive. So, here's where we've landed with these two illustrations and everything up to this point. We are all sinners. We're all sinners. All born sinners. Thanks to Adam. Thanks to Adam, we have an inborn predisposition to sin. And sin leads to death, number one, because uh, uh, it's a penalty. And number two, because sin itself kills. When it says the wages of sin is death, that verse is not talking about God uh, uh, conferring on us the death penalty. There are other verses that talk about that. This simply says that sin itself that pays you death as wages. Okay, that's what it leads to. And I love how Paul's saying this. What do you want to go back to this stuff for? When you look back, you're ashamed or should be ashamed of the things. That's why you were so excited to come out of that. So why on earth would you want to go back to it? It's embarrassing. Anyway, uh, but Christ came. So, so sin leads to death. Uh, and, but Christ came and took our sin in his own body. He paid the penalty at the cross. And then uh, we are good with that. Sometimes we want to stop and look at salvation only as being delivered from the penalty of sin. But he also rose from the dead. And that resurrection, while it was, of course, very necessary to prove that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, and therefore that the promises he made were all true, it also shows that just as Christ triumphed over death, we are supposed to triumph over sin in this newness of life. We, but to do that, we have to consider ourselves dead to sin. We are not just changing our mind when we follow Christ. We are baptized into him. There's an uh, illustration, uh, well, a story from, from my experience that I'll share with you that helps me see this and kind of contrasts two ways of looking at this. Uh, when I worked at Canaan Land, my first ministry job out of, uh, after Rama, working with uh, uh, a lot of drug addicts, who lived there, and I'm, and I'm getting the story of their life and seeing the stuff they came out of, watching the ones, uh, you know, when seeing the transformation when they get there and, and when they graduate a year later, what do they look like, how are they different. And uh, we, they didn't keep super uh, detailed records on people who graduated that program, uh, but the number that was most often uh, thrown out there when people talked about the success rate, you know, uh, there are programs, there are drug programs galore, in this country, and uh, unfortunately, the success rate is somewhere around uh, 10%. Recidivism is, is very, very high. And, and this is particularly true of the 12-step programs and uh, AA, that sort of thing. But Canaan Land was about 80, 85% successful. Most of the guys, the vast majority of the guys that went through that program stayed clean. And, of course, there are people who wondered why. Well... One of the reasons, I think the big reason, was just the fundamental approach. And, uh, and listen, I thank God for anything that has ever gotten anybody free and clean. And I know AA and some of these programs really have helped people. And I at least admire the fact that they're trying. But if you start from the premise that you will always be an addict, I think you're setting yourself up for defeat. When, you're, when your identity is your problem, your sin, your struggle, high. I'm Scott, and I'm an alcoholic. Well, why wouldn't you fall back into that? That's who you are, man. 
And if they drill it into you, you will always be this. Versus what the Bible says. You know what? Consider the guy who did those things dead. I'm offering you a new life, a new name. I'm Scott and I'm delivered. The B.C. Scott used to be this. Used to, this used to be who I was, but now who am I? I'm a child of God. I triumph over sin. And this attitude is exactly what enabled these guys to walk away from it and stay walked away from it. Now, here, unfortunately, is the flip side. And this is when, when Paul talked about, why go back into that thing? Why taste it again? Why experience it again? Because look what it brought you. What was its end? It was, a, it was something you're ashamed of. It was going to kill you, and it will kill you. So why do you want to go back to it? Well, this is one of the other, uh, uh, one of the sad things, and I saw this again. Ha- it happened more than once, but thank God it didn't happen to most of them. There were guys who I saw get free. I mean, I knew they were free. They were, they were, by the time they graduated, uh, you would have a hard time believing that they ever struggled with anything in their life. They were so on top of things. And uh, I saw two guys who graduated on the same day nearly ruin it all, nearly destroy it all. Not because they had anything, they had no thought of, well, I'm done with this salvation stuff, I'm going to go back to being an addict. No, you know what they told themselves? Now that I'm no longer a slave to this, I'm going to go have a taste of it. How do you think that worked out? It It wasn't pretty. I don't know what happened to one of them. One of them did finally get his life turned around. And as far as I know, never went back into it. But I guess what's the, you know what it reminds me of? Let me say this first. Paul's case is that don't think that because you're no longer under the law that that means you can do what you want just because the punishment uh, isn't going to happen. You know, the, the, Jesus already paid for that. Yes, he did. He paid the penalty. But that doesn't mean you can go back and play with those things again because sin still kills. Why go, again, why go back to that thing that had enslaved you? What on earth is, going, is worth going back for? The other thing I always think about when I read this passage is the children of Israel after the Exodus. And you remember, they're out there, they get a little thirsty. Every time there's any threat whether it's the Egyptians, whether it's uh, another nation, or whether it's just nature, boredom, tired of eating the same thing. And they were complainers. Oh, did they complain. And they finally get to this point, oh, that we were back in Egypt. You remember that? Oh, remember Egypt? Yeah, what do you remember about it? I remember the leeks and the onions and the garlic. I remember the cucumbers and the fish and the, the, the abundant water of the Nile. Yeah, Egypt was great, wasn't it? What are we doing out here? Let's elect a leader to lead us back to Egypt. This, they actually, actually went this far. Now, how could they forget the things that caused them to cry out to God in their agony to get us out of here? God raised up Moses in answer to their cry. And they left celebrating. They plundered Egypt. And they had seen God work in their lives with great power. A mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
But as soon as things started to get a little tough, oh, what did we leave Egypt for? I can see why God purposed to destroy them a couple of times. Never mind the chains, never mind the whips, the hardships, never mind everything that caused you to cry out to God. And is there anything like that in your life? Why did I ever become a Christian? And maybe that you're hanging on to this slender thread. Oh, if I'd have known it was going to be this hard. That's probably a good thing God didn't tell me it was going to be this hard. Otherwise, I never would have become a Christian. But at least I'm going to heaven when I die. But boy, do I sure miss my B.C. days. Life was sure a lot funner before Jesus Christ came in and took all those fun things away. You remember the things we got to used to do? used to get to do when we were unbelievers before we had to pay attention to what God wanted us to do. Isn't that a sick way to think for a believer? Unfortunately, that you know, sometimes it's just, this is something that time plays tricks on your mind. Everybody who's ever been to boot camp or basic training, you can probably remember there were some sweet times of bonding There are a lot of good memories that float to the surface. There are things that I literally miss about basic training. And yet, I know when I was there, I hated every minute of it. What was I doing most of the time? If I had an idle minute, what was I doing? Was I sitting there thinking, this is good male bonding. No, I was thinking, how many days, how many hours, how many minutes until until graduation and I can do what? Go home. And we look back on the things that made us miserable. I believe God, I, I think in order to become a Christian, even though we're responding to truth, I believe that God has to implant in us something that I would call a divine dissatisfaction with our lives. When we recognize there, there's nothing, nothing in this world that is satisfying me. There's something huge missing, and it's Jesus Christ himself. And we make that decision. And then something happens. Maybe it happens soon. Maybe it happens later in life. It causes us to look back with longing. Ah, for those days. And that's, that is deception. And we've got to guard against it. We think, well, I'm just remembering some things. Yeah, I get it. But the problem is, and we'll see this fleshed out big time in chapters 7 and 8, the things you set your mind on are the things you're going to walk after sooner or later. All right? Now, Then it gets really good in chapter 7. We'll get into it a little bit, okay? Uh, He talks, he now starts talking about a a marriage vow and how a a vow of of marriage between husband and wife is in force as long as uh, your spouse is alive. You can't enter into another relationship with somebody while you're still married. But if your spouse dies, then you're free from that. And he's saying that... uh, uh, then the, you know, that's supposed to be our relationship with the law. Uh, how are we freed from the law? Well, the one that was under the law died. So now I'm free to serve another. And then, uh, looking at, look at this. In, uh, let's go ahead and read this verse, 7-6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And then look at verse uh, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin... Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. I think it's interesting that he chose covetousness and not murder. 
Because I think, apart from the Ten Commandments, everybody would still know murder was right. We talked about that, how Esau, or not Esau, uh, Cain, uh, knew, knew he had done wrong when he killed Abel. He was hiding from God, and he did it long before the law. Everybody knew murder was wrong, but covetousness? That's the kind of thing you kind of need to see in the Bible. What's wrong with looking at somebody's uh, house and wishing it was my house? What's wrong with being a little bit dissatisfied with my lot in life and being a little bit jealous of yours? The law shows me what's wrong with that. All right? And that's the thing. You know, we, we might have these little, everybody, some things, oh, these things are obvious. But other people want to argue, well, that's not wrong. That's not wrong. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I feel. I can't help the way I, that's really, if you want to get right down to it, it's the way God made me. But then we look at the law and say, no, these things are sin. What? I would have never, I would have never seen anything wrong with these in and of themselves. But now that I see it, and from God's perspective, I see that these things are sin too. All right? Now, he goes to verse 12, explaining again that the commandment, uh, well, there it is, verse 12, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Uh, But but this whole passage leading up to that is, uh, that's what we call, where we say the law is just, the law is good, but the law produces death because what it does is it condemns, all right? You've heard it said this way before that the, the law is a six-foot ruler to show man he is only five feet tall, all right? This is what you're being measured by, and this shows you that you don't measure up. And now I'm going to read one more passage and say a few things before we, before we close out for today. Uh, so bear with me here because it's important. You still with me? Can we go on for uh, five more minutes? All right. Has, uh, verse, beginning of verse 13. Has then what is good, talking about the law, become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I, will not to, what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present, uh, is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I, will not, what I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? From this body of death. Now, that's a lot of will, will to do, will not to do stuff, but I think you get the gist. This is something that has appeared in many forms of literature. Uh, all and many many uh, philosophers have wrestled with this thing, not always from a Christian or biblical standpoint, but it's something that many people recognize in themselves, or even faster to recognize it in others. And it's simply this, I know what the right thing to do is. And because I consider myself a good person, and because I love my neighbor, 
I want to do good. Especially from a believing standpoint, I want to please God. And I know how to do that. I mean, I know what to do in order to please God. And so my will is to do it. Unfortunately, I find myself not doing that. The flip side of that is I know what the wrong things are. And I want to avoid those things. Why? Because they're evil. But you know what I find myself doing? Those things. How is it that I find myself doing the things that I've made up my mind not to do? And he's talking about this tension. What he's saying there so far is clear. What is not clear, uh, or what I should say where there is some scholarly disagreement, is that is Paul talking about himself before he was saved or after he's saved? Or is he talking about himself at all? Maybe he's talking, he's kind of being a voice for humanity in general. And the only reason there's disagreement here is is, is, is if you read on in chapter 8, it sounds like he's on top of it. You know, in chapter 7, it's like, man, I really struggle with this. I want to do good, but I keep finding myself myself uh, sinning. And and the the, the agony that he's he's expressing, oh, wretched man that I am. Is it a that was then, this is now kind of thing? And obviously, like I said there's, there's uncertainty. There, there is no universal agreement on that. Now, where there is pretty much universal agreement is that to some degree, this tension is absolutely going to be a part of the Christian's life. This is not isolated to Romans here. There, the, the, the fact is that as long as we are in this body of flesh, we will struggle with temptation. Where I think you'll see how it shakes out, I believe Paul is speaking about himself. I believe he's speaking about himself as a born-again man, but I believe what he's going on, the point he's going to make is we have to distinguish, and this is sort of a taste of where we'll go next week. Praise and worship team, you could be making your way up here. What he's going to distinguish is there is a time, uh, there, there is a truth that the spirit man, when we talk about being dead to sin and raised to newness of life, that is a born-again spirit talked about this either last week or the week before how our spirit man because it's made in the image of god because it's renewed it's born again we our spirit is designed to respond to the things of god but our flesh still carries around the stain of sin you didn't get a new body when you got born again did you when do you get a new body you get a new body at the resurrection a glorified body Sinless body, perfect body, like Jesus's, right? But we still have this in, in our, our, our flesh. What is it that causes us? When he talks about, I find myself doing the things I have willed not to do, what is it? It's because something is tempting our flesh. So we've got the spirit that wants to follow God. We've got the flesh that wants to pursue carnality. What's going to tip the scales? The mind. What are the things that we are dwelling on? What are the things we're putting before our eyes, listening to, studying, conversing about? Because if you dedicate yourself to carnality in those things and think, well, I'm okay, I still go to church, you are, it's the things you're meditating on, the things that, that, that's going to determine which appetites you pursue, which appetites you seek to satisfy. And when we, when we talk about this next week, I'll do my best to try to cover about what, uh, when he talks about death, is he talking about losing your salvation? I don't think he is, but, and I'll explain why next week. I want to end with this. There's a passage in Ezekiel. Uh, I've got time to read it, so let me just read it real quick. In uh, chapter 9, 
That's Old Testament, right? Ezekiel 9, beginning in verse 1, it says this. This is a vision that Ezekiel's getting here. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's ink horn at his side. Then they went and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over, the abom- over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay young, old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. It's an odd passage, and clearly these men are angels. God is sending them in there to work judgment. This is, a, 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 again, a, a, a vision that uh, Ezekiel is given by God. So these six guys show up, and they have battle axes, right? They're going to go in to destroy but one guy's got a, a, an inkhorn. He said, you go in first. And you put a mark of protection on certain people. I don't know if you remember this, because it's been a while since we were in Ezekiel. He didn't say, go put a mark on the people who have never sinned. Go put a mark on the people who are still living holy and righteous. Do you know what you had to do to qualify for that mark? The sin had to bother you. Those who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done in the temple. You know when you're really in bad, bad shape? When the evil that you do doesn't even bother you. When it doesn't seem evil to you anymore. It shows there's a, if, as long as it, I'm not saying, listen, I know that's setting the bar low. And we ought to aim higher than that. Okay, if it bothers us, next step is do something about it. Stop it. But it just shows how big God is and how merciful he is. It's a sign, man, I'm still sensitive to the things of the Spirit. I sigh and I cry over the evil I see around me. More importantly, I sigh and I cry when I see evil in me. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll pick it up from there next week, but I love that he doesn't just leave us hanging there. He's not just, he's not just shouting out his frustration, I'm wretched, I'm a sinner, and I can't stop. Who's going to rescue me? Thank God there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The rescue has already been effected. Amen. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.